Welcome to the Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Today I'm having a chat with an extraordinary woman, my sister-in-law Kylie. We met up at her parents' house in Brisbane for a coffee, and we chatted about life with an army husband, growing up as a preacher's kid, and then the path to forgiveness and faith after being deeply hurt by church. We also talked about science, maths, and loving her son who lives with autism. But I started by asking her, where's home? Uh, home for me is very much where my husband is. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, that's Darwin, although he's not in Darwin at the moment. Yeah. Um, but anywhere where we are together, that's home. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, the boys as well. Yeah. Um, but ever since we've been married, we've been fairly transient, and I've always had a very strong feeling of home being with my husband. Yeah. Um, so it kind of doesn't matter where we are. Because he's an army chaplain... I do take quite a lot of comfort in knowing that he is away doing God's work, that he's not just gallivanting like some husbands do and he's not just um, off making a dollar, um, that he is actually off doing the very real work of God and that is quite a comfort to me and part of my role as um, his wife and the mother of our children is to keep the home fires burning, as they say, and holding it together and keeping it going at home is one of the ways that I can serve him while he's off doing more tangible ministry stuff um, because he can't afford a divided focus um, while he's away. Mm. Mm. Does that come naturally to you, the keeping the home fires burning way of supporting Troy? Um, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> like it does now because you're a mum. Like yeah. There were times in your life that you never pictured yourself married, let alone. Yeah, kids. yeah. It wasn't until I met Troy that I was going to get married. I, I was 29 when we met and had moved to live near you and David in Townsville because you were starting to have your family and I wanted to be the auntie the fun auntie because I was never going to have get married or have children of my own and then you know God dropped Troy into my lap and that all changed almost overnight and so yeah so that so then I very much wanted to be married and having met the right person I suddenly wanted to have children as well Yeah. Um, yeah and so I'm I'm not a very good housekeeper I would happily just eat toast every night of the week it's just the way I am yeah but you can't do that with the kids so yeah and it's hard you've got to keep mumzilla in tow because you know she's she comes out a bit bit more easily when Troy's away yeah but that doesn't do anybody any favors and so yeah I think the kids and I are doing a lot better at learning how to be kind to each other because it goes both ways you know they they are beginning to recognise that their behaviours impact my response to their behaviour and mm. that we all play a role in setting a pleasant tone in the house mm. um, or vice versa. You mentioned moving around. Obviously, with defence, you need to move around quite yeah. a bit. And obviously, that's hard. Are there positives that come from moving around? Well, I grew up in a ministry family as well, and the longest that we ever stayed in one place was six years or so and so moving around actually comes quite easily for me and Troy's been in the army since he was 17 and so we both find that if we're in the one place for longer than a couple of years we start to get itchy feet and want to move so I think I mean I've definitely got a wanderlust and 
Troy, I think, is just used to moving. So yeah. I like the adventure of meeting new people and discovering new things and yeah. that sort of thing. It is, it is tricky, though, because I am an introvert, and so putting myself out there again and again and again, constantly being the new person, is exhausting. And when you're the new person for six months out of every two or three years, it's, yeah. it wears thin. But again, you know, like I said, if I'm, if I'm with Troy, then it's all okay. Does being a Christian when you're moving around make it a difference? Like, are there times that you're glad that you're a Christian? Yeah, I situation? think so, yeah. Um, I think a big, a big part of it, knowing that when we move, it's because it's um, at God's hand, directing tr- the location of Troy's ministry, that's... Mm-hmm. That, that takes the sting out of moving to somewhere really remote like Darwin. And the, uh, the other thing, so we know that when we go somewhere, we're going at God's hand. Yeah. Um, In a way that you wouldn't if he was a regular soldier who moved? Um, I think it's just, I think it just feels more obvious um, because he's going into a ministry position. It's, it's kind of like the pastor working out whether or not he should be going or she should be going to a particular church or whatever that that's kind of that element of uncertainty is removed for us in that God just tells Troy where to do ministry Um, as in through a voice or through the army through the army yeah oh yeah 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 Yeah, so he just you know if the army says go to Darwin that's God's way of saying go and do ministry in Darwin Um, and so that you know going to you know, remote places like Darwin makes it that a bit easier knowing that um, we're there for a very particular reason, a very particular purpose. Um, And in terms of whether he was a regular soldier, I think in that case, because Troy was a regular soldier before when we first married for quite a few years, I think we saw our ministry role more in which church we connected to. So you you have the perspective of having not only been a member of so many churches, but you've also visited so many churches as you've looked for a new church yeah, in every kind of yeah. city or town that you've lived yeah. in. So, yeah, you must know a lot of churches around Australia. I guess so. Yeah, and yeah. usually Baptist churches or always Baptist churches? Well, um, Troy is a Baptist ordained, ordained Baptist minister, um, and so we do we are Baptists, so we look for a Baptist church first. Yeah. Um, However, in um, Darwin, for a variety of reasons, we're actually going to an Anglican church at the moment. And I'm sure there's things that you find hard about it, but I know you're very committed committed to the Baptist um, theology and principles. What is it that springs to mind? Why do you love Baptist churches? Yeah, what is it about being Baptist? Um, I like the centrality of the gospel and the centrality of scripture. I like that... Um, Baptists don't have terribly many or as many traditions which are of human origin. Yeah, that's, pr- that's probably it. I think I, I like the fact that um, good Baptists yeah. will go back to the Bible yeah. for the authority. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And there's a simplicity in that, isn't there? Yes. At its heart. What you can keep going back to is always the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And the thing that you want to be central. That's right. Yeah. And, and I also like the idea, and I don't think this is necessarily a Baptist thing, but something that I'm conscious of, that you don't have to understand it all to get it. 
um, that the gospel message is simultaneously incredibly simple mm -hmm. and incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. and, and I, yeah. So you grew up um, in a Christian family. I did. And for most of your life as a preacher's kid. Yes. With all that joy and challenge that yeah. comes from it. So I know you fought against that for a while, but how was it for you in that environment coming to own your own faith? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. Well, they say there's only two types of Baptist daughter, two types of ministers' daughters: really good ones and really bad ones. Um, and I've definitely had my share of both of those. <laughs> Probably a little more towards the naughty side. Yes, it's interesting growing up as a minister's child because there's a perception that you should know better because of your father's job mm -hmm. and so I did bark against that a fair bit as a child just and and I think you were know, you conscious of it at the time that that's what you were doing um I'm guessing you probably were actually I, I think I was a fairly willful child so I probably <laughs> was aware of it and I think I think deep down my mum wanted me to be that good little minister's daughter and um that never sat particularly well with me. I'd rather be, you know, dirty and jumping on the trampoline than wearing pretty dresses or whatever. But Dad, on the other hand, was always very protective of, of that. I always felt very protective of me, and I suppose David as well, but I don't know specific examples. But I always knew that Dad expected better of me, not because I was a pastor's daughter, but because I was his daughter. Um, and he that's just what he expected of his children um, that's a really good distinction mm. like how did he communicate that to you he never ever referenced the church in any um either discipline or life guidance conversations it was um it was always in the context of what does the bible say about certain things what does our family feel about certain things? It was never in the context of the people of the church expect this yeah. of you. Yeah. Um, and I remember quite distinctly once when I was about 15, one of the, we were having, I think it was a food fight or something. And he said to me that, this, this deacon said to me, you should know better because your dad's the pastor. And I told dad and he was furious, absolutely furious. And he said to me, if, you, if, if he ever says anything like that to you again, you come and tell me straight away and I will deal with it. Um, because he was so against me being held up as a higher standard because of his job. Mm. And then he probably got up me for having the food fight anyway yeah. because it's not <laughs> the right thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, but one of the things that <clears throat> one of the things that I am conscious of as a adult um, pastor's child um, is the transition from a childhood faith into an adulthood faith mm. and I think that's something that every every child who is exposed to matters of the gospel as a child needs to do they need you need to transition into your own adulthood faith but I think that's particularly critical for pastors kids because Going to church, which is a natural expression of your faith, is so closely tied in with your parents' job mm. that it's very difficult to make the distinction between I go to church because my parents get, my dad or mum would ever get paid to go here at one end of the spectrum. Yeah. 
moving to the other end of the spectrum, I go to church because it's a place where I can encourage other believers, hear, hear from the Word of God and so on and so forth in that natural, personal way. Mm. For me personally, that was a very tricky period. I spent quite a lot of years in what I refer to as the wasteland, um, which was precipitated by some um, very nasty church politics mm. at my dad's last church. I think I was pretty close to the edge of, you know, jumping off into the abyss myself, but I, it was definitely that last push that mm. sent me over the edge. Mm. As in, you just didn't want to have a bar of it? Yeah. 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 Just had enough. Enough of, it was very fake and false, and I'm not a fake and false kind of person. Mm. I just haven't got any time for that. Yeah, so I spent quite a few years licking my wounds and exploring the world and doing lots of things that I shouldn't have. Mm. But in all of that time, I never, threw, I never threw the baby out. Mm. I still hung on to that baby. I still knew that deep down under all of the rubbish that Jesus still loved me. Mm. And sometimes that's, that felt like that was all that I had. Yeah, and it wasn't until probably six, after six years when I moved to Townsville to live near you guys and I went to Townsville Baptist. Mm. I just made myself go because it was a bit of a change of, a bit of a sea change for me, mm. a second sea change. Yeah. Uh, and I made myself go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. Mm. And um, God met me there in a very real way and um, drew me back to himself and drew me back, I think, into a more meaningful position than I think I'd ever been in before. I think I'd always... I mean, I've acknowledged Jesus as my saviour since I was seven years old. I ticked the box and prayed the prayer when I was seven. Mm. But it wasn't until then, when I was 29, that I really acknowledged Jesus as Lord of my life. And were there things that, when you were in the wasteland, that that pulled at you that made you want to make that change and want to get back into church? I think the answer to that question is no. And I think the reason for that is I was so badly hurt by my experience at the hands of Dad's church mm. that um, I couldn't yet separate my own faith from my experience of church. Mm. And the idea of going to a church mm. almost at all um, was just terrifying. Mm. Um, when, when everything kicked off with Dad and it, and it all you know, came crumbling down. Um, I, I went to a church across town, um, uni church actually, and I would arrive two minutes after the service started and leave two minutes before it finished because I could not bear exposing myself to anybody. Just the idea of giving anybody anything to hurt me with, I, I just couldn't fathom that. And I know that that's not how churches, generally speaking, are, but I was so hurt, so... I'd been so savaged by what had happened at Dad's church that I just couldn't afford anything. And unfortunately, that meant staying away from church for a long time. Obviously, you were, would have been angry that your mm. dad had been mistreated and because he was your dad, you felt rejected as well. Mm. Were there other elements to the, the pain? It's... I think this is one of the things that you can really only understand from inside a ministry family and that and that is that 
when one of the parents is a minister, the whole family is in ministry. Mm-hmm. And when the, when the minister and the family gets thrown under the bus, the whole family gets thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can't, you can't separate yourself. Like if your dad gets eaten alive at a church business meeting, you can't go, oh, well, that happened to the pastor, not my dad. Well, it would you know. show a, an odd relationship with... I mean, your grief and pain really shows your strong, strong yeah. connection with your dad. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's that, it's that idea of, you know, because when this all happened when I was 23, mm-hmm. um, and he was the most significant man in my life at that stage, and to have him treated that way was extremely difficult. Um, and the other thing too is like when when a ministry is brought to a close under horrendous circumstances like it was with him, um, it's not just, oh well, I've been asked to leave my job, I'll go and get another job. You have to move out of your house because you're, we were in a church house. Your family has to go to a different church because you know we were going to church with him. Um, you know it involves moving out of the suburb because you can't just you know move into the house next door and keep living where you've been living. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I really did feel like our family had been put out with the rubbish mm-hmm. after nearly ten years at that church. Yeah, and and that's very difficult when you've seen the inside when you've seen the way that your dad has ministered and cared for these people over the last 10 years and then to have the same people just really wipe their hands of you and wave goodbye with no real understanding of the damage that it does. Mm. Mm. I think that's one of the hardest things about the lack of tradition in the Baptist church. Like there's a beautiful simplicity and yet some of the traditions in other denominations protect the minister. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's the good with the bad in both scenarios. Yeah. And I think the self-governance of the Baptist church, um, there's definite benefits to that, but it does allow this kind of thing to happen. I remember when, when having many heart-wrenching conversations with Dad at the time when it happened, um, and he was saying to me that, you know, maybe God is letting this happen for a reason that we don't know and maybe sometime down in the future it'll make a difference, which is no comfort whatsoever at the time. Mm. Um, But um, a few years ago when um, Troy and I were at um, a church here in Brisbane, um, a similar thing was happening to our pastor Mm. and Troy was associate pastor, he was a student pastor at the time and I'm doing his training to be a chaplain. Uh, and I was church administrator and because of the positions that we were in and I think because of my unique history Mm. I could see the train wreck coming and um, we stopped the train wreck Mm. and preserved our pastor's ministry because of the experience that God had allowed my family to go through the crew brought it all up again. It did. I had dealt with a lot of it myself. Like, I'd put a lot of that to bed by that stage. Yeah. Um, and I felt like all of my anguish and all of my um, heartbreak was all vindicated in being able to stop the same thing happening to our, our pastor 
at that church. Um, yeah, and it, that was an extremely painful process too. Like that wasn't a cakewalk by any means. Um, but yeah, that I was glad for my experience at that stage because it meant that we could uphold our pastor mm. and and so what have you experienced about the tough role of forgiveness <laughs> in all of this is yeah. it still a process I think in terms of everything that dad experienced and that by extension we experienced um, I did carry that burden for a very long time and and I was very very defensive um, and I think that was born out in going to church late and leaving early and then eventually not going to church at all for a few years um, just not wanting to be vulnerable to anybody I remember there was a critical moment um, one, one day I was washing the dishes this is when we were living over in Gaythorne I was washing the dishes and I thought I should go and read my Bible Okay, so I stopped washing the dishes and I went and sat out on the back step and I was working through a devotional um, book at that time. I wrote in my Bible, in my um, devotional thing that um, I felt like I was constantly just in a boxer's pose with my hands up in front of my face, getting ready to punch anybody that came too close, just protecting myself and asking God to help me deal with that because um, it's, nice, it's not a nice way to live and it's not a healthy way to minister. And it was three or four pages in the devotional booklet and one of the verses that was talked about in it was Philippians 4, 6 and 7, um, which is not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it was just this idea that I didn't need to protect my heart anymore, that that was God's job and he'd sent Jesus to do that. And that was really just felt like a huge burden off my shoulders. And that, that is the turning point um, in terms of laying down that burden and allowing God to protect me in whatever way that he saw fit. I've never been in the position where I've had to speak to any of the people that were critically involved, um, but that day I did ask God that um, if he brought any of those people across my path that he would allow me to be gracious and forgiving to them. Yeah, so that was, that was monumental mm. and really felt like the last page in the chapter in the last chapter in the book and that now that's just a story up on my shelf now um yeah thank you for sharing that because that's hard yeah and i think you know we can talk about forgiveness as it should be an easy thing to do but it's not and it's a very active thing and, mm. and as as you've experienced it's something that only god can do mm. now where should we go next my boys love that they can ask you any question and they will give you, you will give them a succinct, interesting, helpful answer about anything to do with science. So where does your love of science come from? 
I think I like understanding how things work and I don't like not knowing. And so if I'm in a situation where I don't understand something or I don't know something, I do like working out how it works. Yeah, um, yeah I just think I've just got that natural curiosity in me. So you love sort of working out how things work. Um, is any of that, like does it any of that sort of intersect with, oh, wow, this is how God did it, or is it just kind of this is how it works, that's cool? Like... Um, I think it's – I think you can't truly understand how things work without marvelling at the hand of God. I just – it everything – the way that everything hangs together points back to God, and I, I, don't know, I, I don't know whether I just don't have a good enough imagination to believe in evolution. I, I just – I can't. You look at the complexity of even a single cell, let alone a tissue, let alone an organ and a body, and how how can that possibly have arisen by chance? It's yeah. So you know, and, and the God being the the creator and sustainer of all things, like I see that, and I'm a maths teacher now. Um, forsaken my first love of science and gone on to maths. Um, <clears throat> And I think the same thing with maths, that it all just points back to God. Mm. Um, yeah. Are you going to ask me about maths? I can ask you about maths. <laughs> I was, I was, this is where Richard Fiber would come up with a beautiful quote from a famous mathematician that would lead into a lovely question. So Einstein famously said, I don't have one. Let me give you one. Tell me what Einstein famously said. I can't tell you what Einstein famously said, but I think one of my famous non-mathematical quotes from a mathematician is from Blaise Pascal, who came up with the idea of the God-shaped hole, that in your heart, in your soul, there is a hole that is the shape of God and can only be filled by God. And I think that's really quite beautiful coming from a mathematician because mathematics as a field is as close to perfection as you can get because you can do the maths and get it right you can do a book full of maths and get it perfectly right and i think one of the mistakes that people make with things like maths is looking to it for that sense of perfection that can only come from knowing that our sin is perfectly dealt with on the cross through jesus death and resurrection and that only only that perfect relationship with God, which you know we need to wait for until heaven, mm-hmm. um, that's the only thing that will fill that. But do you think mathematicians are searching for perfection, or some of them are? I think so. And I, I don't think it's limited to mathematicians. I think um, that's part of the human condition, that, that that sense of something significant being missing um, is the driving force behind a lot of what we do as people. Um, buying new things, having new relationships, um, sex, jobs, money, all of that I think is an attempt to return to that perfect state that we lost in the Garden of Eden. I think maths does that best amongst all of the worst options um, because you can have that sense of perfection and that sense of rightness and also that sense of elegance. Um, but still is not even remotely close to um, the rightness that comes from a right relationship with God. Um, Adam Spencer um, said a quote that um, one of the things that he likes most about maths is that it's the only thing where truth and beauty can coexist. And in terms of the things of the world, 
maybe he's right that maths is the only place where truth and beauty coexist, but it's lowercase t and lowercase b for truth and beauty. And I think that capital T truth and capital B beauty only exist within the story of the gospel. Now that you're saying that, I'm thinking back in my maths days when I solved a difficult problem, there'd be an aha. I can mm. imagine for a PhD student who's working for years on a theorem, the aha that they would get. I wonder if that is a tiny reflection of the aha of God putting all things right yeah. at the end. And I think us. it is. Yeah. And I think more so in maths than any other field because there is that rightness. You can turn to the back of the book and you see that you've got the same answer. And that completeness too. Mm. When it's right, it's right and there's no more to be done. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating, Kylie. (laughs) Thank you. Now, what kind of things do you uh, read, listen to, watch to keep you growing in your faith or even just going in your faith? Yeah, yeah. I work through a daily devotions called Desiring God, which is by John Piper. Um, And I find that um, very interesting because it's it's a Bible, a particular Bible verse, and then um, not some dinky little story that goes with it. It's it really sort of unpacks the the language of the verse and the implications of it. And um, I find that very interesting and helpful. Um, and is that the one that's got excerpts from his books? Yes. So, yeah. I get it on my iPad, but it always seems to say from page something, something of something, something book or a yep. sermon or something yep. like that. Yep. Yeah. Until recently, I was working at a Christian school. And so we had staff devotions every day. Um, and we were responsible for giving those devotions on occasions. Um, and so that, that was always very helpful to have lots of different people's perspectives on a day-by-day basis Um, but I've changed and I'm now at a secular or a state school Um, and so and I've got a longer commute Um, so I've started listening to books in the car on the way and I'm currently some way through um, Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, Yep it's um, Christian Audio christianaudio.com maybe and there's heaps for free some you can buy but there's heaps on there for free I think this one's for free yep cool that's good intel Mm. um what else did I want to ask you about your son who's now 10 um, was diagnosed with autism about five years ago and I know for you it was such a grief to have that diagnosis because of what it meant for your hopes for him um, and you'd also a bit of a relief that it made sense of so much of what had been going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, how have the last five years <laughs> been in kind of continually understanding that more and working through what that looks like? Yeah. Um, Troy and I saw ourselves prior to the diagnosis as parents involved in course correction, like like our kids are little sailing ships and they're sailing roughly in the right direction and sometimes they stray a little bit and we just do a little bit of gentle course correction and send them back in the right direction and that eventually they'll end up, you know, wonderful, constructive, contributing citizens and so on and so forth. Mm. And that's a mental picture that we talked about a couple of times. So we had this little picture of our children on sailing ships or whatever and then we suddenly discover that (laughs) our child is an octopus driving a train. (laughs) In the lake. In the lake. Yes. Backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly 
we were just playing a completely different game. When we initially started to investigate what was going on, it was on the heels of um, 13 weeks away for Troy in our first six months in Darwin. Sam and I were at each other's throats for pretty much the whole time. And when Troy got back, I said, we need to do something about this. There's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the both of us. I don't know what it is. We need to find, we need to find out. And I mentioned to his teacher, he was in grade one at that stage, mentioned to his teacher that we were going to take him to a psychologist and find out what the deal was. And she said to me, I wonder whether he might even have autism. And my first thought was, what a load of rubbish. Autism doesn't even really exist. And so we, we went, we started on this pro- process and it was probably six months where we got everything tested, his auditory processing, his muscle tone, everything tested. And the psychologist got to the point where she said, I think we need to do the test for autism. We had to fill out a hundred question questionnaire which was really quite harrowing because you had to detail the deficiencies in your child which no parent likes to dwell on um, we had to write frequencies and you know how how what degree it happened to and it was really very distressing but by the time we put that questionnaire in and gave it to the psychologist Troy and I both said to each other there's no way it's going to come back with anything but autism we'd done some investigation we'd worked out what it was and Sam ticked so many of the boxes yeah and so it did it came back Um, so Sam has what then was known as Asperger's although that's not a classification anymore it's just um, high functioning autism so he has a much higher than average intellect Um, part of that process was an IQ test and he did really quite well on that um some some of them it's average like for example he can tie his shoes and speak and dress himself as as any 10 year old can whereas for kids with um, more profound autism that can be an issue but the particular manifestation for sam is the social interactions Um, and so he has a much lower degree of empathy than his peers yeah and so the process that went with that was we did lots of therapies play therapy, music therapy, psychology therapy, all sorts of stuff, all of which made a little bit of a difference for a short period of time. And we just engaged, and the school engaged in some serious hardcore conditioning, basically just teaching him how to behave in different scenarios, Mm. which must have been very exhausting for him. But And nice that you can see some. Oh, absolutely. And the progress that we've seen is amazing. Sam is a a very bright, happy, curious little boy who is learning to engage in tricky social situations. And he's doing doing really well. And we're very proud of him. Yeah, he'll always be a quirky little boy, but he's a rich little boy. Some parents say, even if I could, I wouldn't take away their disability. But I would, Mm. and I still would. Mm. Um, I love Sam very much, and he's an amazing little boy. But his autism makes life hard for him. Mm. And of course I want to take that away. Of course I want to smooth the way for him. Part of who he is is due to his autism. He's definitely inherited my curiosity about things and he likes to understand 
exactly how things work. I don't know. I don't know if I would change it because it is so much of who he is now. And I think now perhaps that he's come to, he and we have come to terms with it a lot more, I think. Um, but it's still hard. It's still hard for him and always will be because the things that other kids learn along the way, he has to be actively taught. I don't know. But yeah, it's certainly hard. I remember when I was giving birth to him, um, I just, um, you know, like every mother wanted a healthy baby, you know, I just don't want, I don't want a baby with a disability. And I was relieved when he was born whole and lovely. Um, and then it's hard having, having a child with a disability. And, and especially an invisible disability because, um, people often don't realize. Yeah, I think um, as Sam as Sam grows up, he's going to be a problem solver um, because he he understands the ins and outs of how things work, and uh, I suspect that he will he will be the awkward problem solver in the church. People won't quite know how to deal with him, but they know that when there's a problem that needs fixing, he's the one to go to. Well, he'll have plenty of work for him, won't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest on the Lydia Project. It has been fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing uh, so honestly about your worries and your faith. And um, I'm encouraged by our conversation and I hope others are too. Thank you. Thanks.